The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from Psalm 119, the verses 97 to 104. Psalm 119, the verses 97 to 104. And you will be able to find this on page 708 of your pew Bible. Today we'll be looking at the third petition of the Lord's Prayer as we're moving our way through it in the Heidelberg Catechism, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we'll be touching down on this psalm as we work our way through this. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. We'll now read together also from God's Word as summarized in Lord's Day 49. Lord's Day 49, which you'll be able to find on page 562 of your Uh, of your pew Bible, I mean of your book of praise. What is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In history, we read of a story of the time of the London Plague. The London Plague of 1665 was terrible. Most shops closed and orphans roamed the streets. Parents wailed and the dead were carried out daily. On July 16, 1665, businessman Walter Petherick, who was a widower with four children, he took his family to the parish church. The sun was brilliant and the Thames smooth, but the heart of London was sad and a somber church was packed. The minister read from Habakkuk 3. Fig trees may no longer bloom, or vineyards produce grapes. Olive trees may be fruitless, and harvest time a failure. Sheep pens may be empty, and cattle stalls vacant, but I will still rejoice in the Lord. That evening, a horror fell over Petherick. He feared his children would die. He called them together, read Habakkuk 3 sent them to bed, and then he prayed earnestly for the first time in years. 
He cried over each child, saying, If my child were snatched from me, my fine boys and lovely girls, the treasures that she, his wife who had passed away, that she had left me, how could I rejoice in the Lord? And he continued praying in anger, Spare him, O oh, spare him. Spare her, O oh Lord. Have pity. As he prayed, he realized he had long neglected prayer to the Lord. He had been more concerned about figs and olives and cattle and harvest than for the things of Christ. He wept and he confessed and then he prayed on and found peace. It was this moment of horror in which the plague was all around that exposed something in his heart. As he watched friends and neighbors carrying away their own children, their own husbands, their own wives, it opened his eyes to the fact that he had been living a life that was focused on my will be done rather than on thy will be done. It was good and right for him to beg God for the life of his children. But in reaching a point in which he would be willing to turn them over to God if his heavenly father would choose to take them home, he came to the realization that there was more in his life that he needed to turn over. And it was God's word that cut him to the core. It was God's word that had brought him to this realization. This is the heart of our Lord's Day today. God's word is a reason for us to respond, to respond in love at God's wisdom and God's discretion. God's ways are higher than our ways. And as his children, we are called to look at the future differently than those who are around us. To be responsible for the future, about the future, yes, but to be obedient as we submit our futures to him, yes, as well. But also to rest in the assurance that it's firmly in his hand, that it's carried out as his will ordains, to rest securely in that. And that brings us to our theme for today, I will look to your will. And we'll see, first of all, God's hidden will, secondly, God's revealed will, and third, contentment with God's will. So what's the difference between God's hidden will and God's revealed will? These are two aspects of God's will as he carries out what he desires in this world. God's revealed will is his word. God has told humanity what he desires of them. And we are to respond in faith, to respond in obedience to his word. God's hidden will, or sovereign will, on the other hand, is how he allows events to unfold in history. All of history is in the palm of God's hand. We don't know what this will look like as it unfolds. Although we can see God's leading throughout our lives when we look back on what has passed. In Psalm 139, verse 16, we read, 
All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And we see here God's sovereign will laid out for us. The problem is that sometimes people will mix up these two. Sometimes they try to move obedience from the category of God's revealed will to God's hidden will. Someone meets a handsome young man who doesn't believe at all. Months go by of them dating and now she wants to marry him. She says, we met in a shopping mall and it just clicked. I really love him. These things don't happen by chance, right? God is in control of our meeting. God led us to each other. Why should I give him up? The problem is that such a person is saying that their interpretation of God's hidden will, God's sovereign plan was for them to meet, and therefore God's sovereign plan overrides everything else, any objection that someone else might have. Much difficulty happens when people today try to pry into God's hidden will and replace his revealed will with their guesses and so live out their lives. Stress about the future and even bad decisions or ungodly decisions can come from them trying to look further down the halls of time than God has revealed to us. Instead of taking each day as it comes and looking to the Lord for grace in this time as they live in obedience to his will. Now, consider the response of the author of our psalm today in contrast with that. Where does his focus lie? Not on the future, not on fears of what may happen, but rather his focus is on today, this very day, hearing God's voice, not in some mystical sense, not in trying to pry out of God some vague idea of what might be coming down the pipeline, but instead focusing on what God calls him to through his word. His eyes are fixed on the word of God. You can see this very same kind of language coming out in the many Psalms of David as well. Now you might look and say, well, wait a second. Look at these authors. Look at this man, David, even. Look at what he did during his life. He's a pretty sinful character. His eyes weren't exactly fixed on God's word all the time. And that is true. His sins where he departed from God's law and followed his own will caused ripple effects that spread throughout his whole life. Consider his sin with Bathsheba when he committed adultery with her. When he decided to pursue his own will rather than pursuing the will of God. What came of that? In the short term, much grief came of that. But in the long term, you can also see how his discernment was absolutely shattered discernment is being able to tell right from wrong wise from unwise and for king david well you can really see that coming out in his life can't you david's sin here was not like breaking a bone where it might heal back even stronger in the short term than before 
It's more, you can compare it more to tearing a ligament where the least little wrong movement can cause damage that throws you out of commission all over again. Look at his long exiles. Many of them were in response to his lack of discernment, which led to sin. The damage that it did to his discernment had lifelong effects. God, in his sovereign plan, allowed the effects of this to play out in David's life. Consider the incredible amount of damage he did when he allowed his daughter Tamar to enter into the house of his son Amnon in 2 Samuel 13. If David had had this discernment, he would have been able to better judge the character of his son. And yet the damage, hurt, and betrayal that Amnon inflicted on Tamar is one of the results of David's sin. It was Amnon's sin, but David's broken discernment fed this as well. David's son Absalom, too, was able to seize control of his kingdom through his father's weak-willed response to his actions. He had lost discernment here as well. But what does this have to do with God's word? What does this have to do with reflecting on the goodness of God's law? Well, David wasn't able to trust his own will. It's sinful. It's been compromised. And that's much the same for all of humanity after the fall into sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 describes this as well when talking about people who want to rely on themselves for direction. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But this very fact shows us the problems with relying on our will or on our personal opinions of what God's will for our lives should look like. And this is why David underlines the importance of God's revealed will of the word of God for all of life. When you try to peer into God's hidden will and start to do guesswork as, the, as to the decisions that you make, assuming that God wants to put you somewhere, this is problematic. Because in your assumptions, you start to project yourself and your own desires and your own thoughts onto God. And the very real danger is that the Christian who tries to do such things will begin to make excuses for his or her behavior in the name of God. Now, that's not to say that God can't use our sinful choices and actions and work them for our good in the long run. You get it sometimes that people make unwise choices and that it turns out all right, and that they therefore justify their choices on that basis. That is, to put it bluntly, self-deception. Simply because it was what God chose to incorporate into his hidden will, into his sovereign plan, does not mean that he has placed the stamp of approval on what was done. We can't use God's sovereign control as an excuse for doing what's wrong. Consider this in light of the crucifixion of his own son. The greatest wickedness in this world was used to advance the greatest good and the greatest act of grace that this world has ever seen. 
in God's sovereign control. As he carried out his hidden will and allowed things to unfold as he had ordained them, he had allowed this to happen. The word of God says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not murder. This was God's revealed will. This was what men had gone against as they crucified our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we can see that God even uses the wickedness of man and their rebellion against what he has commanded to advance his purposes in this world. To advance what's in in accordance with his eternal plan. To finalize the redemption of a people for himself. Beloved, God does work out his sovereign will from eternity. But that is not to be our starting point. That is not the will that he has revealed to us. God calls us not to guess what he might do and then respond. But he calls us to rest in who he is and what he has declared to us. To remain content with his word. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The authors of this catechism are well aware of this reality, our sinful heart and our corrupted will. And this is why this catechism, this discussion of the petition, turns us away from ourselves. And instead it begins with saying, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will for it alone is good. And this brings us to our second point, the revealed will of God. The author of our psalm today shows us what resting and trusting in the will of God looks like This section of Psalm 119 stands out in that it doesn't have any petitions in it. It doesn't have any requests of God. But rather it's just a quiet interlude meditating on the Torah, on God's word, as the source of true wisdom which David and which this psalmist so deeply love. You see, this psalmist recognizes his own sinful nature. He knows that his own inclination is to follow his own will, his own desires. And following that path will lead him to trouble. We can see that in our own struggles from day to day too, can't we? Even when we're stepping back from our own sins. Even when we're trying to put them behind us. we can see that the temptation there is to start putting up our own personal adjustments to our living so that we can hold it off at an arm's length at least for a little while. But what we don't understand when we do this is that our discernment is broken and what we put in place is the result of that broken discernment. 
The psalmist here knows his own weaknesses. And following that, down that path will lead him to trouble. But it's that very knowledge of himself, that very understanding of himself that drives him to God's word, to depend so heavily on God's word. Let's take a moment to think back to Psalm 36 for a moment, the psalm that we sang just prior to the reading. Deep in my heart I know the voice that lures the wicked to his choice of sin and self-delusion. Self-delusion is to deceive yourself, to get yourself into such a state that you somehow manage to explain away the wrong that you have done in pursuing your own desires. The psalmist doesn't want this. What God has given to David is the opening of his eyes to see that when man does what is wrong, men and women who do what is wrong are deceiving themselves. And we recognize that this is an inclination that every Christian has to struggle with in their lives as well. The only difference being that the Christian is different from the one who rejects God and their eyes have been opened to know exactly what they are doing. The psalmist knows that if we try to find our own way, then we will keep stumbling back into our own sin. But if instead we go to what God has left for us and our children forever, that is where we will find true wisdom. That is where we will find the will of God. It seems that there were those who were around the psalmist of Psalm 119, that those who were around him didn't understand this. But the psalmist did. And in listening to God's word, he was able to gain more understanding than his teachers, who were just trying to figure out how to go ahead by trial and by error, by stumbling around blindly in the dark. God's word gave him an understanding of this world that surpassed anything that they could give him. And that let him trust in the God who is in control. Biblical decision making is not about looking for God's hidden will and then trying to arrange our lives around that. The simple fact of the matter is that when we start to line up our lives in that way, God's will starts to look suspiciously like a 21st century North American's will, a will that's based on ourselves. A will that simply wants nothing more than for you and me to be happy. A will that rather downplays holiness, rather downplays dependence, and pushes aside what God might command. And instead, it's a will that amazingly lines up with what I want out of life. I will find a way to get what I want. And if someone points me to where God commands something else, well, they're being legalistic. They do not understand the will of God for my life like I do. We deceive ourselves when we do this. This is what David speaks of in Psalm 36. And considering what we saw of him earlier, we know that he himself is quite familiar with the consequences of deceiving oneself. But here in our psalm, God himself teaches us through his word. Verse 102. When we live in accordance with his will, we learn how to live in the way that he delights in. And that, for the psalmist, is the best place to see. As the famous, famous quote goes, there's no better place to be than in the center of God's will unless it is in his presence. Now it's true 
The Bible isn't a handbook for every situation that we come into. We don't say, which university should I go to? Open our Bible and drop in a finger at random. But it does give us guidance for living our lives and to live in a way that is pleasing to our Father in heaven. And so we strive to learn God's will from his word to learn the principles for living life here on earth in a way that's pleasing to him, to look to each other and to ask for advice and guidance according to his word as well, to learn how to move from simply struggling to move to putting to death sin in our lives. We don't much need a better reason than this to dwell in God's word from day to day do we? To meditate on it. It is God's gift for us to live life in this world. And so we gain direction from it each and every day. But above all, it gives us comfort, which brings us to our final point. The only way to really find comfort in God's hidden will to be certain in his care for us in this world as he carries out his sovereign plan in this universe is to firmly establish ourselves in his revealed will. And in his revealed will, he has promised us the following. It's God's will for you to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. Acts 3 verse 19. It is God himself who brings you from death to life in order to be able to do this. Ephesians 2 verse 1. In Christ, God is for us. He has redeemed our souls. And even if he takes everything else away, we can rest in the quiet confidence that we, body and soul, belong to our faithful Savior. So that even if he chooses to take all of our earthly relationships and possessions from us, he will still be with us because he has promised this to us. And it is in faith, faith in this, that we are given the strength to carry out the duties of our office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven, as the catechism describes it. Yes, it's in this. Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Romans 8, verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in the knowledge of this, this which God has revealed to us in his word, that we are able to face what comes. And because of this, 
We read in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 that we are now given the strength by his spirit to begin living all of life to the glory of God no matter what comes. This is the truth that God has revealed to us through Jesus Christ. As we are given the answer to this petition of the Lord's Prayer, we do pray that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. We look to his word. We rest in the strength and in the new life which Christ himself has given us. And we meditate on his promises. We love his law. Thinking back to Walter Petherick again, the disaster with the plague wasn't the only disaster that he faced in life. One year later, after what was known as the Great Fire burned through, one year later, after, after this fire burned through London, It threatened his warehouse. Almost everything that he owned in the world was there. And there was no backup, no insurance in that day to protect it. At this time, however, there was no anguish. What he had learned, what he had learned prior to this, as he reached a point in which he was able to surrender his own children to his heavenly father, if his heavenly father chose to take them home, this he carried with him. There was no anguish, just a simple trust in God's will. He later wrote, Lord, thou hast been pleased by pestilence and fire to redeem my soul from destruction. Thou didst threaten me with the loss of thy choicest gifts that I might set my heart's affections once more upon the giver. But the fig tree did not wither, the vines did not perish, the olive did not fail, the pestilence did not touch my children, the flames did not destroy my goods. Accept the thanks of thy servant this day and help him all his days to rejoice in the Lord. So as we saw, there are two aspects to God's will. His hidden will, his sovereign will, and his revealed will. Petherick, by nearly having his children taken from him by the pestilence, which is to say the plague, has God, had God take hold of him through his word in response to this disaster which he faced and point him to his Redeemer. It was in the confidence of belonging to his Redeemer, this confidence that had been brought to him by God's word, by God's revealed will, that he could face whatever else God had ordained to happen. God himself is in control in this world. And we trust in his word We trust what it says about our current situation. We trust him in what he says about the future that lies in store for all who repent and believe. We trust in what it says about our identity in Christ. And then firm in the salvation that he grants us, we respond in the obedience of faith, 
with the confidence that in all good things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. Amen.